welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in the Classical Corner. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Classical Corner. Today's episode is going to be slightly different to my usual format, as I'm excited to say that I will be reviewing not one, but two new albums, featuring some of the top soloists and ensembles in the world. I've listened to both albums and thoroughly enjoyed each of them, but it is worth mentioning at this stage that this is just my view on the delivery of the music, and so I very much encourage you to listen to each of these albums yourself, to form your own opinions, not just on the music itself, but also on the interpretation of it. Spoiler alert, I can actually assure you, however, that each disc is absolutely spectacular, so you really are in for a treat. I'd love to start today's episode talking about a new album recorded by The English Concert. The English Concert is an outstanding orchestra, exceptional in the world-renowned quality, ambition and variety of its live and recorded output, unique in the zeal of its players for working and performing together, unwavering in its desire to connect with its audience throughout the world too. Under the artistic direction of Harry Bickett and principal guest Christian Bezidenaut, the English concert has earned a reputation for combining urgency, passion and fire with precision, delicacy and beauty. All of this is beautifully reflected in their new album of Handel's La Resurrezione, which was released by Lynn Records on the 8th of April. Following on from their acclaimed concert cycle of Handel operas and oratorios, including Rod Linder last year, the English Concert, under Harry Bickett, have just released their next album of Handel's La Resurrezione, which was released by Lynn Records in April. La Resurrezione, or The Resurrection, composed by Handel in his mid-twenties, was first performed on Easter Sunday in 1708, marking the climax of Handel's time in Rome. The oratorio is a tour libretto by Carlo Capece, who was a court poet to Queen Marie Casimir of Poland, who was at the time living in exile in Rome. The work details the events between and during Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And like all the oratorios, the action is carried forward in recitative, with the exploration of character and moods portrayed in the arias throughout by a cast of liturgical characters. Lucifer, Mary Magdalene, an angel, John the Evangelist, and Mary Cleophas. The new recording was released on Lynn Records on April the 8th, exactly 312 years after it was first performed on Easter Sunday, the 8th of April in 1708 in Rome. And it features some of today's finest voices, including Lucy Crowe, Yeston Davies, Sophie Bevan, Ashley Riches, and Hugo Hymas. The oratorio begins with a glorious sonata in concerto grosso style, showcasing all the brilliant players from the English concert. The vibrancy of the oboes in the opening subject welcomes the whole orchestra, including trumpets, who join in triumph before some fantastic exchanges between leader Nadia Zweiner and principal cellist Joe Crouch. 
Harry Bickett explores the whole score of dynamics and timbres in the orchestra, making the opening sonata both hugely exciting and also sensitive, with incredible playing from the Continuo team, which continues throughout the entire album. As the opening sonata sleepily melts away, we're awoken suddenly with trumpet fanfares for the first aria, which is expertly sung by Lucy Crow, who nimbly masters Handel's coloratura and delivers the opening text with such great conviction. The text reads, Open, O gates of Avernus, and at the beautiful radiance of an eternal light, let all your horrors be dissolved in a flash. Yield, you horrid gates, yield to the King of glory, that of his victory you may be the first honour. I'm thrilled to say that I'm actually joined today in the classical corner by the wonderful British soprano and award-winning soloist Lucy Crow for a little insight into recording this fabulous album with the English concert. Hello, Lucy, and thank you so much for joining me in the classical corner today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Handel's La Resurrezione. Um, have you sung this oratorio before you recorded it? Well, actually, I sang it uh, in lockdown as well uh, for Sky Arts. They did a live uh, recording of a concert performance um, and it was with Harry in the English concert. So I had a little bit of practice before we recorded it. Um, and actually, the, the main aria that I get to sing as the angel, um, I recorded for my first ever disc with the English concert about 10 or 12 years ago now. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've performed it not that often, but a couple of times. That's absolutely amazing because I was chatting to some other cast members the other day and they were saying that because the English concert recorded this during lockdown, you were going to have a big concert tour, but obviously that was all cancelled. So you just did the recording. And I think for the recording process, it's actually slightly different from my perspective also as a player to have not been to, to not be coming at the recording, having done loads of concerts and feeling very comfortable in the work. Exactly. It's a different sort of approach. It makes it much harder. In, in fact, I'm recording it with the English concert at the moment. We're doing, we've just done a little tour of Zersi and um, I, we started recording some of the recitative yesterday and it's so hard to stand there recording recit when you're, you know, you've got your microphone there and you're having to do it as perfectly as possible. But when you're not standing, when you've not got an audience and when you, you've not got, you're trying to incorporate all the drama um, but it's actually really difficult to muster that, especially when you haven't performed it at all. I mean, at least we've done two concerts of it. So for La Resurrezione, um, it was really hard to, to, yes, to do that. Of course, we're professionals, so we try our best. <laughs> I, I hope we do a good job. But from personally speaking, I was really glad to have had a performance under my belt before recording it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly for things like Resit, as the recording process goes, a lot of things are just very out of context. So you will do one aria, then you'll have a lunch break, and then suddenly it'll be, okay, we're going to do these four resets, none of which are connected at all in the time frame. One's at the beginning of the oratory, one's at the end. And you've got to get your head around the emotion, what comes before and after, you know, all of that to, to get your head around, which is a lot to, to yeah. portray just through a microphone. It is. That's why, you know, there's a lot to be said, actually, for these live recordings that, you know, we often do um, with, you know, ed, uh, you know, sort of add-ons at the end of a concert to just go over something that you might not be happy with. Um, they do tend to sort of get a bit more of the atmosphere, the, the performing atmosphere to them. But we're all used to it. You know, I think we, we, we're used to doing this and you try. What's difficult, I think, is you, I, I was doing a recit yesterday 
And I did it about four times. And then suddenly I was like, you're not doing this the way you were doing it in con in the concert. Come on, like you need to switch on, Crow. So, you know, I suddenly remembered. And so it, you really have to be so on the ball in a recording uh, situation. And um yeah, not think about your shopping list or when you're going to pick your kids up from the from school. <laughs> I know, which which you can do when you're in a concert because actually most of the time when we're performing, we are. It's it's so much in muscle memory, isn't it? That you you are very much engaged, but you do have a side of your brain that's wandering, which sort yeah. of keeps you sane throughout the whole thing. Yeah, just totally. you know thinking what you might be having for dinner later after yeah. the concert or which <laughs> pub you're going to. <laughs> yeah, although it's funny, isn't it? Because some some concerts your mind does sort of do that, but then there are other concerts where you're so immersed in it that you you don't think of anything else. And I I, I never know why, you know, one particular might have, I never know what, what, you know, is what causes that to happen. You know, there are sometimes when I'm sort of, you know, singing Susanna, and which is a massive role. And sometimes I'm so in it and thinking, oh, I've done a great performance. And then the other night, I literally am like, you know, thinking, other stuff my brain is sort of somewhere else and often that's when I get the best response and I really don't get that I'm like, but I didn't give my all but for some reason obviously maybe just being that little step aside or away from it meant that maybe I was able to communicate better with the audience anyway yeah, sorry perhaps. I divert I divert no not at all and <laughs> um, so in La Resurrezione who is your character you've got so one I'm, of the opening arias yes I am the angel uh, the angelic one. And yes, I start off the uh, the whole piece with the most incredible aria. Um, Open, O gates of Avernus, and at the beautiful radiance of an eternal light, let all your horrors be dissolved in a flash. It's such an incredible aria. I mean, it's very bold of Handel to start mm. off this oratoria with this with this piece. Um, but it's a tour de force, really. Um, amazing coloratura, Um and it's a joy to sing. I have to say, um, when I recorded it, you know, all those years ago, I think I did it mm. a slightly faster tempo. Um, right. Don't know whether it was because uh, I think we just decided to take it a tad slower this time round. Um, but it's still, it still doesn't take away from that sort of amazing hearing the orchestra and the voice rising and falling, you know, dramatically. Almost, you know, you know, showing us the image of of heaven or hell. Exactly. You know. With the trumpet fanfares, of course, which, you know, uh, yeah. depict heaven and glory. Um, yeah. And Handel's writing is, he's so brilliant at capturing these scenes. And um, it's yeah. like when you, when you get the trumpets joining in like that, you just know that it's, it's a, it's, it's like Handel's Let the Bright Seraphim, you know, bring a trumpet along and it's just going to be utterly amazing. No, exactly. And I just wanted to find out how did, what did you enjoy most about the recording process or, not. <laughs> uh, um, I, I enjoy, I enjoy it because it's you get the opportunity to do it, you know, quite a few times. Of course, we are up against the clock, but you can do it three or four times to make sure you mm. sing it as well as you possibly can. But of course, of course, the flip side to that is it's really frustrating because often you know you can produce something better than you're able to in that moment. Um, and also, what I love about singing Handel is the spontaneity you can bring. Um, often I don't sing the same ornament. Um, mm -hmm. I just sort of throw something new in, which can be quite frustrating, I think, for the conductor and the, the orchestra. Although, bless him, Harry said it's also exciting for them as well. But I don't know whether he was saying that to make me feel better when I nearly <laughs> threw, them a, threw them a googly in Carnegie Hall the other day. Um, but uh, yeah, what's, what's great is being able to have that focus. Um, and actually you do tend to sing slightly different you know, when you've got the microphone there 
Whereas mm-hmm. in a live performance, I tend to play a lot more with the colour in my sound and I'm not scared to not sound beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like sometimes to sound ugly, you know, to give as many different colours as possible. If it goes with the text, then absolutely be brave and don't sound too great on a certain note. But when it comes to recording, you don't particularly want to be that, you know, do that. You do want to try and sing as well as possible and mm-hmm. and produce as most beautiful a sound as you possibly can. That makes sense. Exactly. Absolutely. And I, I um, feel the same when I'm recording as well. And there's that fine balance of keeping things exciting, spontaneous and sounding almost performance like, but still wanting to in some way have kind of a an air of perfection around it because you yeah. are going to be listening back, back, back. When something's on the stage, it's gone in a second. Exactly. You sing the note yeah. and you either grasp the audience's attention or you don't and it's all about yeah having them really in the palm of your hands and telling that tale that story with the text yeah. with, with great diction with the palette of colors and um you're right you can sort of just go for it more in performance there, yes, there's less sort of ride riding on it really. yes you've got to strike the right balance when it comes to recording and i think that can be quite tricky sometimes especially when you um, you know, you're just throwing yourself into it and wanting to be as dramatic as possible. But often in in that in those situations, maybe you don't produce the the most beautiful sound you can. So yeah, it's definitely finding the right balance. Absolutely. Well, you sound absolutely spectacular on the entire album. So oh, congratulations. Thank you. And I will definitely insert a little bit of uh, the clip of the ports of Avernus for everybody to hear the <laughs> wonderful coloratura and celestial trumpets. Thank you. album, the English concert displays their sensitive yet authoritative playing in the accompaniatos, especially under Ashley Rich's powerful and dramatic voice. Ashley plays Lucifer and he perfectly captures the essence of the devil through his incredible delivery of the text in his first aria, Caddy Ever. I'm not going to go through every single number on the entire album as we would be here for quite a few days, but I did want to touch on a few arias that really stood out to me. The first of these is Ferma Lai, or Fold Thy Wings, which is sung so beautifully by Sophie Bevan. 
The haunting accompaniment by continuo and two recorders is just magical and mirrors the text so beautifully. Fold thy wings and, O oh my eyes, fly not unwelcome sleep. It is swaying and pastoral, underpinned by an amazing deep drone. And in the B section, the gamma playing by Jonathan Manson is absolutely glorious, especially alongside Sophie's exquisite ornamentation. Another of my favourite arias is called Carol Filio and is sung by the brilliant Hugo Hymas. Hugo sings with such beautiful control, diction and a spectacular palette of colours, which is highlighted by the gorgeous continuing playing by Tom Foster, Sergio Buccelli, Joe Crouch and Karina Cosgrave. another of the characters from the oratorio, I'm joined by the international award-winning British countertenor Yeston Davies for a little more insight into the album, the recording process and the work as a whole. Hi Yeston, thank you so much for joining me in the Classical Corner today. Where are you at the moment? Hi Davina, I'm in Munich um, just for one more day. I'm in a production of Handel's Agrippina, which is uh, the uh, Staatsoper here. Fantastic. Well, moving on to some more Handel, I wanted to talk about the English Concert's new album, Handel's Resurrezione. And I'd love you to tell us a little bit more about the character that you play in the oratorio. Yes, I'm, I, I sing the part of a woman called Mary Cleophas, who is uh, in the Gospels, one of the three Marys, um, who uh, attends the tomb of Jesus and is part of the the bigger story of the three days of his crucifixion through his resurrection, which is what La Resurrezione deals with. Um, originally, it was sung by a man of castrato. Women weren't particularly um, favoured as singers on the stage um, by the Pope. However, in this first performance, uh, the soprano role was sung by um, Duristante and the Pope admonished Rispoli, who put it on in his palazzo in Rome. Uh, for this and so she was replaced with castrato later on so um yeah that's that's my character and throughout the drama um and it is a drama in the sense that when it was first done it was performed in 1708 it was performed um we'd imagine in a concert situation but they built a proscenium arch they had um, 
back cloths, they had imagery of the of the crucifixion, and there would have been costumes and so on. So it's it's very much um, a drama in the sense of, of a staged opera, I suppose. And um, uh, yes, the characters sort of reflect and comment as they do in the passion stories. There's sometimes just the mood rather mm. than um, the, the actual drama itself is moved on by the recitative in between the arias. And then there's um, beautiful moments of, of reflection and um, a sort of expansion on what's happened in the drama. Yeah, exactly. And would you say that playing a character in an oratorio such as this is different from a character that you play when you're in an opera, such as what you're doing at the moment, in terms of the sort of amount of dramatisation that you do? Yeah, I mean, it depends whether you're... I mean, obviously, if you're staging it, it's very different, because I've mm. staged oratorios, um, the very famous production of Saul we did at yeah. Garden with Barry Kosky. You know, that if you did that in concert, which we're doing, actually, in, yes. uh, with the English concert in, in the Edinburgh Festival... Um, the 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 interpretation is still at the same level because you still have to deal with in the 18th century style quite limited amount of text which is repeated in the in the dark capo aria for example yeah. and as a singer you still have to to think about um, how to move that um, story onwards so you go back and sing the same tune but with the same text but you elaborate it and it's a good reflection of real life is that something happens now and in four minutes time something else happens you can't just go back and sort of repeat stuff so in that sense there's there's not a lot of difference and i think it's good as a singer to to kind of approach an oratorio in the same way as an opera because it is dramatic and and i think in particular even though this is the beginning of handel's career when he's young and he's full of really amazing orchestrations and really exciting music his style develops in such a way that by the end of his career he's doing these big um, much more serious um, sacred dramas like mm. Theodora and Jephthah yeah. um, and, and various others, which, which kind of take from his massive opera in, opera career in the 1720s and 30s and, and then um, become much more serious versions of what we listen to in La Resurrezione. Interestingly, La Resurrezione is very similar in music to a lot of Agrippina, which I'm doing mm -hmm. right now. And the other sort of oratory, Il Triomphe del Tempo as well. His Venice and Rome music is full of the verve of youth, but underneath there's this sense that he's, he's, he's playing with the style at that time, even then. Um, so in a way you get tunes, but it's not quite the same as what you get in the mm. opera where the tune really becomes the, the big seller. He, the, the orchestra, you guys get to play some amazing, exciting music, which stands alone anyway. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a combination of drama but not necessarily in the way in the characterizations we as we'd see in opera because the characters in a way are stepping out of the drama to comment exactly if you imagine a john passion or a matthew passion if i sing the aria von den stricken or es ist verbracht mm. something's just happened and then there's the sort of spotlight goes on and yeah. time stops and you like a, a sermon a preacher you mm -hmm. kind of interpret what's just happened yeah, exactly. No, that's that's been summed up so beautifully. One of my favourite arias in the album is Piangete, Si Piangete, which you sing so beautifully, Weep My Sorrowful Eyes. The writing is so mournful and dark with these beautiful um, overlapping violas and cellos and gamba writing for Jonathan Manson. Um, it, the line always goes somewhere slightly unexpected when I was listening to that, actually. It's not where I was it, it sort of it's very um, windy, isn't it? And it kind of takes unexpected corners. 
Yeah, I think this is that's what you're saying there is really you're hearing a young composer exploring, well, firstly, using um, tropes that are kind of common, which is mm. the gamba, the weeping sound of the viola, the gamba. Um, it's often called uh, the sort of most human of the instruments because it's like a human voice. The way the bow is drawn over the string rather than pulled across the string. So it's it's like a breath that the right hand pushes the bow. And if you were doing it on cello, it would be the opposite way around. Yeah. That is much more like a breath where you support and from your diaphragm you push the air out. It's 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 like that. So the, the gamba is kind of like a very soulful instrument. Uh, Bach uses it very famously in Esses for Brachs and mm-hmm. of course other other pieces um, in the Matthew Passion as well. At, at moments at which there is a sort of crying, a uh, tearful mm-hmm. uh, to reference. I don't know the, the, the Elizabethan melancholy that flow my tears falling. Yes. Um, falling motif. So in Esses for Brach, Esses for Brach, going down. In this, you get and it's really expansive in terms of range. It's a very low aria for me. Yes. Um, and it goes down to bottom Gs, and it doesn't really go much higher than a B. So there's a couple of higher notes, but they're really the icing on the cake. And the um, the gambler and I have that interplay, but again, it's like it's echoing all the the mood of the of the weeping of, of Jesus' death and the and it's what you said about the fact that it, it takes turns and so on is because I think at that stage handles writing in a style that is very instrumental. And I think had this aria been written 20 odd years later, you would have heard slightly more, the phrase structure would be slightly different. Um, <clears throat> what After our performance of Agrippina the other day, which was written around the same time, um, he, uh, our harpsichord player came out, he just commented about an aria uh, just sung. He said, it's so interesting, the phrase length are so unexpected. Sometimes they just hang over a bit longer than you think and then somebody takes over. And I think Handel sort of started to um, formalise his style a bit more. So you've got Ritonello, then tune, then Ritonello, mm. and became perhaps in, in line with when he had to make money and he had to sort of present opera drama in London as something that was a box office um guarantee mm. and and when interestingly later on in his career when he goes back to the oratorio um it often wasn't very successful with audiences because i think it involves a, a different sort of um attention span in a way there's much more philosophical reflection and um so perhaps it's as i said earlier it's a combination of he gets it completely right towards the end but it's something that takes like it's not it doesn't appeal to the audience in the sort of immediacy of um of the the, the kind of uh, big showy opera um mm. shows that he he was he was used to in the 1720s so you're right this is kind of a young composer showing off to his uh, patrons because all this music at the time of course in Rome and then Venice was for private patrons it wasn't yes. public so he's he doesn't have to necessarily uh, get a box office hit no. he just has to please his master so in a way He's trying to be clever. He's trying to be showing off. There's so many things going on. And it's really exciting. But it's like it's we know that he goes on to greater things. But it's you're seeing the beginning of something. It's it's he's chucking everything in. So it's exactly that. It's this aria takes twists and turns. Mm. Um, and I think also he will have himself brought his own character, his own experience in life into it. And I think 
as we all know, you know, when you experience the death of a parent or whatever, something like that in life, it changes the way you think about things. So this is a young man's view of what it was to be Mary Cleofas commenting on yes. the death of Christ and the fear of what what comes next. Mm. So it's a very unex what what what's coming next, what happens after death, and of course this story is all about that 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 love and commitment and um, faith and so on. You both sides of the coin. You have to have grief. You can't. You can't uh, ignore that. You can't just have everything being happy and and, and joyful. And um, so the unexpected turns, the the windy um, sort of tunes where where they go, and also my range. It goes right down. It mm. goes up, and it's 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 a difficult aria to pull off well because as a countertenor, you have to kind of reprogram your voice for this particular aria when you're doing a recording, especially you say, right, I'm going to do that one at a certain time of day because the bottom notes are the first thing to go when you're tired. And recording brings that that yeah. very much to the fore. You have to really be careful about what you're doing. Um, so, but I enjoy singing it because it's, it really is a soulful aria. It mm. really connects with something. So um, it feels very spontaneous because it's not so formal, because you, you don't quite know where it's going. Yeah, and I kind of love that. I, I, even sitting here talking to you about it, I can't even remember whether the form is very clear because it's not actually a dark aria. It sort of mm. doesn't go back to the beginning. Yes, it goes back to the beginning that develops, which is quite a mature way of writing. It's saying the human psyche it's developing. She's witnessing the grief and it changes. Mm. Um, so there's so many things to think about. But we'll we're, we're going to perform it. I think again for for real in Pisa in in the autumn. Uh, I think September which is great because we didn't get to perform it when we recorded it, which is a really important thing. I think you get a different take on stuff. That's not to say the recording is is um, any less more uh, any less uh, virulent without a live performance, because actually I think recording is a very fake thing anyway, in general. Even if you've performed stuff live, you, recording is an amalgamation of hundreds of takes. Yes. And pe- people, different energies, different times of day. And... We, we listen to recording for perfection, but at the same time, what's perfection? Mm-hmm. Live performance is great because everyone forgets what happened straight away. So it's yeah. um, it's ephemeral. and um, You're all geared up th- in exactly the same way to yeah. hit the platform at the same time to, you know, go in and you've all got the same outcome. The English Concerts recording of Rod Linda, for example, mm. which preceded this, that was done, which should have been done after an eight or nine concert tour, but because of COVID, that didn't happen. But the funding was in place. We did the recording and that was done off a few days rehearsal with people who could pull it out of the bag. But I've since done that piece again um, as, a, as a staged opera. And I think if I recorded again, I would do it differently. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the reaction to that recording is still valid. You know, people who really enjoy it and think it's full of life are hearing something where maybe people are on edge because they're like, we haven't done this live. We have to do something. And so it brings out a different sort of performance. Yeah, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And that is a beautiful recording, Rodelinda. Um, you're certainly put through your paces in another aria, which is, I can't actually pronounce it, but it's about stormy waves. <laughs> and um, Handel writes in such a vibrant way for both strings and voice. You've got so much coloratura. And the middle section is much calmer, I think. You probably know exactly the text, but it's got these beautiful oboe lines and it's more about the storm subsiding. Could you tell me a bit, us, our listeners, a little bit yes. more about this. So uh, the R is called Naufragando va per l'onde, which essentially is um, uh, <clears throat> talking about Naufragando shipwrecked, uh, being shipwrecked, uh, being all at sea, which is a, you know, a sort of metaphor which we can all relate to. 
And it's a classic example of Handel using um, uh, a sort of musical alliteration and imagery to paint the picture. It's, you, it, uh, you know, it's, it's a rocking oboes at the beginning. It's, mm. it's, a, um, it's like, it sounds like a roller coaster. It's very difficult to sing. You have, as you said, lots of these roulades and coloratura. And, um, but it's also, it's in a major key. It's quite kind of upbeat. There's a sense of um, heading for heading for port out of the storm, which you get in the middle section, which is much more reflective. And I, I, from what I remember, I think it's in, it goes into the minor there. Um, and there's a number of arias by Handel that are like this that mm. um, that use this imagery. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's kind of I look forward to doing it live because it has a completely different feeling in the middle of a concert suddenly to be able to do that kind of stuff i mean it's again it's it's it uses the the human voice as a a tool to express um a sentiment or a mood and it's it's because of the virtuosity of the singing that we react to the music it's not necessarily what you're saying it's to me handle does what handle does very well is in the introduction to a piece and he does this throughout his career. He he tells you everything about what this piece is about. If it's a a villain in an opera, without fail, it's usually a bass. But basses, yeah. they get these sort of you know the, the introduction, of the music, the tune will be strident. It will have octave leaps. It will have fifths. It doesn't have the the nice predictable safeness of a tune which is in in uh, in a scale. Yeah. Um, and then when he has a romantic lead singing a lovely opera, he'll have much notes that are close together. And so this example, you know, and then when he when he has to sort of depict a shipwreck in a storm, he he knows exactly which colours to bring out of the orchestra, and which uh, which you know, for example, there's lots of wind playing very far, yeah. oboes and bassoons and all that kind of stuff. And the basses, uh, the cello part in this, it's really virtuosic. Mm. Um, the bass, the bass line, and it just straight away you think this sounds like. Uh, a shipwreck. You don't yeah. have to know what I'm singing about no. to to get that. Um, and let's not forget when this was first done, that the orchestra was led by <clears throat> um, Corelli, and so all these it's it's a similar when you get Agrippina and Ronaldo, the violin parts as well. There's a lot of virtuosic writing going on there because he had at his at his disposition these incredible yes incredible musicians. Um, so everything about it is virtuosic. Um, which in turn tells you everything you need to know about the story because it's like going from darkness to light. Despite the shipwreck, despite the being thrown off course, there is the sort of guiding star, which I think is reflected on the, in the B section, mm. uh, to bring you home to port. There is hope, there is uh, resurrection. Yeah, exactly. Well, that is beautifully, beautifully summed up by you. So for our listeners, um, I urge you to all go and listen to this wonderful new recording of Handel's La Resurrezione with the English concert recorded by Lynn Records. Yestin, thank you so much for joining me in the Classical Corner today. Thank you.
album I'm reviewing is completely different and is entirely a cappella, made up of music solely by John Wilby. Draw On Sweet Night by E. Fagellini and Robert Hollingworth was released on the 1st of April by Coro. To welcome in the spring, E. Fagellini has put aside its beloved Monteverdi to uncover its own national heritage, the best of John Wilby's classic Golden Age madrigals. The album marks the first specific recording of Wilby's madrigals released since the 1980s and it covers a central part of English choral culture that has been strangely out of fashion for so long. E. Fagellini is a British vocal ensemble specialising in early music and contemporary music. Founded by Robert Hollingworth at Oxford in 1986, the group are internationally renowned for their genuinely innovative productions and for presenting music in very unusual ways. Over the years, they have won many international awards, such as the UK Early Music Network Young Artist Competition and a Royal Philharmonic Society Award too. The English magical composer John Wilby was born in Suffolk in 1574. Wilby was employed for decades at Hengrave Hall near Bury St Edmunds, where he seems to have been recruited in the 1590s by Elizabeth Kitson, who later became his patron. Wilby is probably the most famous of all the English madrigalists. His pieces have long been favourites and are often included in modern collections. His style is characterised by delicate writing for the voice, acute sensitivity to the text and the use of false relations between major and minor modes. This album contains all of Wilby's signature styles and is so expertly executed by the incredible ensemble Ifagellini. Throughout the album, such a vast palette of colours is used. Beautiful employment of text and diction, highlighting word painting, voice leading, and generally telling a unique tale in each short work, which is completely encompassing for the listener. The album contains all of Wilby's well-known madrigals, and despite containing the music of only one composer and for the same forces throughout, the album is filled with such beautiful contrast. The plangent dissonance of draw on sweet night and weep weep mine eyes evoke English melancholy, whilst sweet honey sucking bees and adieu sweet amaryllis are such sheer pleasure to listen to and you can hear the joy amongst the ensemble as they sing to one another. Each madrigal is between two and four minutes which is actually the perfect boucher with 25 madrigals and moods included in the album. From the first magical, I am completely drawn into the sound world which the ensemble creates. Draw On Sweet Night is such a welcoming magical to open the album with. It is spacious, clear, precise, and contains all of Wilby's usual techniques of delicate vocal writing. If you're not in love with E. Fagellini by the end of this, then I don't know when you will be. It really is utterly stunning. I've listened to the album as a whole in one sitting with each piece bleeding into another, but I can assure you that there is something for every mood and everyone included here. 
It's impossible for me to pick a favourite, as each madrigal is filled with such contrast, quirkiness and raw emotion too. But one that certainly stands out to me is the final number on the album, which is called Where Most My Thoughts. In this, you can really hear how well matched the velvety voices of this ensemble are, weaving in and out of each other, both blending so well, but individual enough to hear each line perfectly. The text in the magical is filled with such juxtaposition and suits Wilby's trademark writing so well. Some of the text reads, Where most my thoughts, their least mine eye is striking. Where most I love, I never show my liking. I careless seem where my most care dependeth. It is one of the longest madrigals on the album, but you really feel that you've completed an incredibly exciting voyage by the time you're greeted with the final triumphant major chord, coming full circle from the tender opening madrigal, Draw On Sweet Night. So, for you to listen to, this is E. Fagellini and Robert Hollingworth singing John Wilby's Where Most My Thoughts.
today by another wonderful guest to talk about this fantastic new album, Draw On Sweet Night. And that is the founder and director of Evagelini, Count Tenor, Robert Hollingworth. Hello, Robert, and welcome to The Classical Corner. Where are you joining me from today? Today, I'm in Trondheim, eating five types of herring. That's what I had for dinner last night, (laughs) which I think was one type of herring, but five different sauces. And it's very lovely here. Amazing. What are you doing in Trondheim? Uh, working with the Trondheim vocal soloists that are affiliated to the Trondheim Symphony Orchestra, who's Rachmaninoff and um, uh, Rachmaninoff and Brahms concert I shall be going to in an hour or so. Uh, and we're doing a programme of basically all the vocal music that I really, really like. So some birds, some lassus, some Daniel Lazur, a bit of Vaughan Williams. Uh, and they're mostly going ill. So I'm having to replace some of them with super reader British singers that seem to be able to sight read anything off the planet. But um, lovely people. Oh, my goodness. Lovely people. Mm. So you're joining me today, really with the view to talking about your fantastic new album, Draw On Sweet Night. And I just wanted to find out how this album came about. What was the reason behind recording it? 
Well, it started with a film that we were involved in in 2015, and we've been involved quite a lot in our own films over the years. But this is a guy called Tony Britton that has done a lot of really interesting sort of drama doc stuff over the years, most famously a film about Warlock and one about Britain as well with James Gilchrist and fantastic singers like him. And he wanted to make a film about Wilby because there's not very much known about his life. He didn't didn't work that much in London. He was stuck mm. at Hengrave Hall near Bury St Edmunds. And but there's certain women that seem to come up in his life. Why is his second book of Madrigals dedicated to Arbella Stewart, who was then um, executed only six years later in 1615? Um, and who was um, Mary Darcy? Uh, and he spun a sort of beautiful fantasy out of it. And we recorded some tracks for the for the disc, but often only little bits of them. And I thought we should really put this into a, mm. um, a, a, a CD because... Uh, I suppose there are loads of English magical CDs, but then I looked and actually there aren't. There are there are sort of, you know, mixes of them. But John Wilby, there hasn't been a CD release of John Wilby since I was in short trousers, since since I went to university in the 1980s, the Consort of Music. So I thought, I know what I'm going to do. There are only two books of his magicals. I'm going to go through them and I'm just going to pick the very, very best ones. And I'm very good at that. I have a lot of lot of faults but one of the things I'm good at is the difference between and you'll know this the difference between a good piece and the difference between mm. a really great piece yeah um and so I put an album together of his very best pieces and they go from three to four to five to six part pieces and there's a plangency about them there's a sort of bite if you think English madrigals from sort of your blackadder and think don't say tush Percy after tush it's hey nonny and then I shall have to call the police um it's uh, it's not quite like that. I mean, obviously, 98% of English magicals are like that, but the remaining 2% are so powerful. And this disc is nice because it's a mixture of of um, a few fluffy ones, if you like, um, and the, the more powerful ones. And they're so pleasurable to sing. Um, and, and I don't think that's, I, you know, we people look down on English magicals. Oh, they're just for the pleasure of those singing them. Well, yeah, absolutely. There is a strong place for social music in society. Um, it's something that people massively missed in the various lockdowns. But actually, these are top pieces. And John Milson, who wrote the note about them, says the thing about these pieces that they really develop. It's not just a sort of fluffy idea and that's it. Can I say fluffy twice in your podcast? Um, <laughs> uh, there's... That they're they're rather more involved, uh, and so I think it's been really worthwhile. Also, it's that time of year, isn't it? It's English mm. magical strawberries and cream that time of year. Everyone should have an album called Draw on Sweet Night. Exactly. Well, what an amazing pre to the album, and I completely agree. It really comes across when you're listening to the disc, the enjoyment that is really going on in the group, if only to be a fly on the wall in the recording sessions and actually when you are making this beautiful music together because you really can hear not only each individual line weaving in and out of each other but the beautiful harmony of you all coming together and just matching so well which is displayed so amazingly in this Wilby music. You've mentioned that Wilby hasn't really been recorded very much since you know you were in short trousers. Is that one of the reasons as opposed to doing another disc of Bird or Morley or Dowland, was there any temptation to integrate any of their music into the album as well? Or did you want to just keep it purely Wilby? I think there is a, there's certainly a truth that if you're trying to sell something, mixed composer discs can do very well if they get picked up by a, you know, a radio station or something. But generally, single composer discs are a little easier. And Wilby's worth it, you know. Because you're worth it. We know Wilby needs his, his own CD. Uh, and... 
you know, the, the sound of the music, you know, Thomas Beecham says, the trouble with the, what does he say? He said, the English don't like music, just the noise it makes. And I think that's uh, something that you and I would recognise from our specialist wells of 17th and 18th century music, that there is, there is a pleasure to be had from the surface noise of something. But these, and, and we work a lot on acoustically pure intonation, so we're not singing piano tuning, but but harmonic series inspired tuning. So the chords should have a certain luster to them. But I go back to what you said about the text. You know, all, all, all us vocal groups all say, oh, we're interested in the text, but, and maybe we all are, but actually transferring that to an audience is quite a different thing. And I've spent most of my career, how old's Fagellini now, 36 years old, um, thinking about how an audience receives music as opposed to what we as musicians want to do to them. And so, um, uh, you know, we, we would record ourselves and listen to ourselves and say, oh, we thought we were doing the text for that, but actually it doesn't come across because that's another thing. There's probably a logarithmic scale or something. That's nonsense. I don't know anything about maths. There's probably some sort of logarithmic scale that says that you have to go beyond what you feel is textual colour for an audience to pick it up. And time and time again, time and time again, we would stop the, the session and say, I know we think we're doing this, but it's just not coming across in the cans, mm -hmm. in the headphones. Yeah. And, and when you've got singers like, you know, Nicholas Mulroy and um, Martha McLaurin and Greg, Greg Skidmore, they really do text. We just had to do it that little bit more. Mm. Well, it certainly comes across in the album and not only the text, but the diction and how each each tale in each madrigal is portrayed. You know, there's actually quite a limited amount of text in each madrigal, but with each phrase, how the intonation changes and how the line is delivered changes all the time. And that's what keeps it so kind of um, vibrant throughout and was one of the things that stood out for me. Talking about how you chose the music, you said you picked all, all the best ones, essentially. Are any of the madrigals connected in any way? Uh, were they all from his time at Hengrave Hall or um, is there any connection between any of these? Um, he had two, two books of madrigals, 1598 and 1609. And what is extraordinary is just why he didn't write more. Uh, he seems to have been very involved at Hengrave Hall with the sort of daily music. We, we still have lists from Hengrave Hall, what they had, a chest of crumb horns, vials, sorry, it's a chest of vials, uh, lists of crumb horns, corner muse, all sorts of things. Um, but uh, he sort of seems to have given it all up and was given quite an expensive sheep farm by uh, the lady of the house. And clearly, like a lot of musicians in the pandemic, thought, you know, pardon my French, sod this for a living. I'm actually going to do something that makes some proper money. Um, and so he seems to have sort of given it up, but but lived with the daughter of the lady house, Lady Mary Darcy. He moved to wherever she lived in Colchester. He's buried in Colchester now. Um, so we know that these pieces would have been performed there. Uh, and if you watch Tony Britton's film, which is also called Draw on Sweet Night, actually, which you can now stream, uh, you you can see this happening in the house, which is which is rather lovely. Um, are some of the pieces about the women that he may or may not have loved? Inevitably, yes. Did he write some of his own texts? I don't know. Draw on Sweet Night is quite a sort of melancholy thing, that English melancholic temperament, that love of the sort of black night, um, which is funny because you think about these pieces and we all associate them with sort of punting down the, the Isis uh, on summer nights and, and singing this. And But, but actually, uh, there are some quite varied uh, very text. I mean, my favourite text in the piece is in the set is 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 the one that a lot of singers will have um, a sympathy with, especially at the end of three days of sessions. It's called "My throat is sore, my voice is hoarse." 
I did um, see it's that. The second, it's the second half of Joy's Pleasing Pains. My throat is sore, my voice is hoarse. It sounds like um, uh, the Monty Python, the Holy Grail, doesn't it? Um, but um, I, no, it's very difficult. I mean, sometimes you do get, I mean, you can, there are some, a um, lot of Italian magicals that we know that they were written for a particular occasion down in a valley. Oh, what shall I do? That's a stupid title for a magical, isn't it? Love me not for comely grace with Grace Davidson singing in it. That was rather nice. Sweet honey sucking bees. Uh, that's the one you want to spell properly. Um, uh, yeah, a lovely, lovely set. But I don't think yeah. you can really point very much to because we have so little information about mm. it, which allows your imagination to run free. Exactly. Something that really stood out for me as well was um, when I was reading about Wilby's music, um, as with other magical composers there's a lot of kind of juxtaposition that's used throughout um certainly with the use of keys major and minor and and swapping keys regularly within you know a small short piece of two or three minutes um and some of the the numbers that i thought having read the title and read the text that i thought were going to be in a minor such as um you know cruel my heavy heart uh were in major keys and it's it was very interesting, actually. Yeah, I think that that so twentieth twentieth or eighteenth nineteenth century um, connection between minor as sad and major as happy doesn't quite work. In fact, it's mm. almost the op opposite in that the the Dorian mode, if you like, which is sort of close to the minor. That was the no the mode for all noble emotions. Yeah. And actually, if you want a, if you want a harshness, you go to the major key, and that still exists in in uh, French modal theory. Mm. In that uh, um, the major word, for, sorry, the word for major in French is dur, mm. and the word for minor is molle. Well, dur means harsh, yeah. and molle means soft. So our expectations um, are a little. Uh, a little sort of skewed as far as that concerned. Mm. Um, the other thing you get is the sort of clash of major and minor chords at the same time. And the editors mm. are quite confused by this in the 1520s. And they would write little footnotes and mm. say, well, this is what the composer's written, but you probably want to finish the, the natural before singing the flat. And, and no, that plangency of major minor is mm. something that's a, a really strong part of the melancholic flavour of this period. And it's something that uh, actually Netherlands composers done have done before. Monteverdi does major minor at the same time. Yeah. But interestingly, always with the major at the bottom and the minor at the top, because that reflects the natural flow of the harmonic series. As the notes get closer, as you go up the fundamentals, boom, 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 doo, 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 etc. You come to the major third before you come to the minor third. So if you swap that round, do a minor third at the bottom and then a major third at the top, yada dee, yada dee, that just sounds dirty. But there is a certain genre of Tudor composers that quite like the dirty mm. and they do subvert it. Amazing. Gosh, what an insight. Incredible. Uh, my next question, of course, is do you have a favourite on the album? I, I love singing nearly all of them. I love singing Down in a Valley because it's just it's just so glorious and it's mm. it's got a joke. It plays a joke on the on the tenor, which I think is always good. The tenor has to sing at one point, sweet lovel, my wounds be painful. And it's right at the top of the tenor. <laughs> and it is, he's going to feel you can just see will be singing one of the other parts and laughing yeah, at the tenor yes, having exactly. to do that. But I do think the last track where most my thoughts and despiteful thus yeah. with its second half, you can hear the singers really trying to make the sense of the, the, the rhetoric, the text, the overall meaning clear. 
Um, and I'm not singing in this one, so that's also a, a bonus. Um, and I just admire my colleagues, Grace Davidson, Martha McLaurin and Rebecca Lee, Nicholas Mulroy, I think Greg Skidmore in this, or was it Matthew Long and Charles Gibbs, just for going the extra mile. And, and let's let you and I both, we should acknowledge that we're standing on the shoulders of giants here. We couldn't do this unless the Consort of Music, the Della Consort, King Singers had done this repertoire mm. first. And, and we know what they do. And because of that, and, and other people will, you know, and so it infinitum will stand on ours and do mm. better things. But I think this is where it's at for the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, interestingly, that is also my favourite magical on the on the oh. album. And I just thought it was absolutely stunning. Ifajlini is known for thinking outside the box. Did you manage to incorporate some of your beloved Monty Python into either any of the sessions or onto the disc? Or are you saving that for the concerts? Um, I suppose the... The, the slightly crazier things we've done over the years um, have all been there for a reason. And uh, I, I hope what we do is never sort of just stuck onto the top. It's no. all there because because it helps someone understand something. Mm. I have been doing this YouTube series called Sing the Score. If you look up Aoife Agilini, Sing the Score on YouTube, you'll find 32 episodes that does mix Monteverdi and Monty Python. Um, usually... A, because it's cheaper than therapy for me to put this out there, um, but also because um, it keeps people watching. I, I teach at the University of York uh, and I'm very aware of attention spans, especially with Instagram and everything like that, just at the touch of a, a button somewhere else. And so I'm very interested in how you keep people focused. I mean, everyone listening knows when they go to a classical concert, there's that moment 18 minutes in when either they're wondering about the interval drink or whether they've left the iron on, or, and you and I, as third time says, you and I really know this, that they're asleep. How much of a classical music <laughs> audience is asleep? 18, because they've been working all day and they've rushed there and they've scrubbed the 80% food in. at least. Yeah, so I'm I'm very interested in, in attention span and keeping people going. So I, I would recommend people to, I think it's number, is it, forget which number, but if you put sing the score, draw on Sweet Night, you will find a programme that not only talks you through Wilby and shows you the places that he used to walk, um, uh, work, but also introduces you to a sort of cross between the matrix and uh, medieval music theory, which is bizarre at times. Sounds fascinating. I will definitely put that mm. in the link for the podcast. Next album to look out for? Uh, actually, the next thing for us, I can't tell you what the next album is because it's too interesting an idea and someone else might pinch it mm. but what i can tell you is on uh, on boxing day we are releasing a new comedy film a nine minute farce and if you think farce is easy think again it's the most precise thing i've ever done remember comedy ascends to farce it does not descend into farce farce is the purest form of entertainment so we have a comedy that will be made available on the afternoon of boxing day but there's so much um, at our website, there's so much video and our YouTube site for people to dip into. There are things called Cake Mix, uh, Phony Canzoni, little films we did last year that spoofed the classical music thing about all those grid performances that everyone saw. You know, here's me mm. playing the ukulele eight times. Um, uh, so there's, there's plenty out there already for people to enjoy, I would say. Absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for joining me today in the Classical Corner. It's been wonderful to chat about your new album. Thanks for having me, Davina. I do hope you all enjoyed the review of these two recent outstanding albums by The English Concert and E. Fagellini. Thank you so much, Coro and Lynn Records, for letting me include them in today's podcast. They were such a pleasure to review, and I can't wait for the next ones. 
Thank you all so much for joining me for another episode of The Classical Corner. I hope you'll tune in next time when we shall continue to explore some more glorious music together. In the meantime, I wish you all a wonderful week. Goodbye.